I don't know about anyone else, but I very rarely pay attention to the multitude of ads that I'm bombarded with online. But last year in winter, I came across one that actually caught my attention. It was for inclusive eyewear. I had been thinking about buying new sunglasses in time for summer, so that was one thing that piqued my interest. But the other was basically my curiosity. What exactly was inclusive eyewear? I didn't even realise eyewear was not inclusive. That is until I got my order and discovered that these sunglasses were something that I would have loved to have had earlier in my life. In this episode, I speak with the designers and creators of those glasses, the co-founders of Covery, a brand of inclusive eyewear for faces of all shapes and sizes. Florence and Athena chat with me about their experiences growing up in the US as women of East Asian backgrounds, the ins and outs of establishing a brand as newbie business owners, and why it's important to them to promote diversity and inclusion through their company and products. Let's talk about you so do you want to do like an introduction and like talk about like where you're from and yeah and where you grew up and all that kind of stuff sure of course yeah, yeah, sure. okay <laughs> hi everyone um, my name is Florence and Athena and I co-founded Covery together we actually met in high school in a suburb in New Jersey we both ended up going to fashion schools on opposite coasts so I was in New York City Athena was in Los Angeles and we stayed connected over the, you know, throughout college. Like we'd go on spring break together. And funny thing was that after we graduated, we both ended up working in New York City in the fashion garment district. So we ended up working like a block away from each other and we'd like meet up during lunch. And that's sort of when we both decided to start Covery as well, which we can get into a little bit later, but kind of came full circle for us. And so both of you are second generation immigrants. I think that's the right generation. (laughs) So both of you were born in the US, um, Mm -hmm. but your parents came from elsewhere. Um, Do you Mm want to talk a bit about that story for each of you? Yeah, sure. Um, So my family is from this small town in like really close to Beijing. It's like an hour and a half from Beijing. And uh, my my dad actually got a job when he was younger. He was studying, he was like in medicine and he was studying that. So he got a job, uh, which relocated him to Basel in Switzerland. So that was like his first time out of the country. I remember they like, my grandparents always tell me the story, how they had to like um, sell their TV and like get all friends and family to like get enough money for him to buy a plane ticket to go out there. I mean, obviously the company reimbursed him, but just to make that first step to get out there. And it was, he was like the first person in the area to like leave the country because back then it was like, you know. So uh, so then he, he went there and then my mom went with him and then my mom got pregnant and then they relocated back to America. So the company brought them to America and then they had me here. And yeah, I remember they were, they would, when I was first born, there was no like FaceTime, obviously, or um, in case anyone's wondering, I'm 30, <laughs> 31. So 31 years ago, there were no FaceTime, there's no email, nothing like that. So my family in China would have to, they would send like snail mail, like an actual letter, and then say like in two months, go to your office, because that's everyone only had phones in the office, nobody had a home phone. 
So go to your office and wait for me at this time and I'm going to call you. <laughs> so then that's how it worked. And then I remember my dad had like never seen so much food before. So he like bought all these like canned goods and sent them pictures, like, like mailed them photos. And my aunts were like so jealous of all the canned food that he had. <laughs> it's so funny about the snail mail thing. Cause I remember as a child, um, cause I'm, I'm, in the same generation as you like mm-hmm. as a child we didn't have like phones or like social media yeah. or anything. and so mm-hmm. you just kind of had to like agree to meet your friends at a certain time and place and just hope that they showed up yeah <laughs> yeah just, exactly it feels like such a different world right <laughs> yeah yeah I can't believe like how much things have changed and how everyone is able to like how my grandparents can even use a phone. Like the, it's changed so drastically that I'm like, how do you even adapt to this? It's pretty cool that you guys can like get on board and, you know, yeah, do these yeah, things. It's, yeah. It's awesome. Um, and what about you, Florence? So similar to Athena's parents, um, my parents came here in their late twenties, right after they got married, they dated for like three months and then got married. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, so they moved from Korea, had my brother, had me. Um, we we moved to New Jersey, I think, because my aunt lived here. I feel like that's very common. Like, you kind of go to where your relative is. And I'm always like, why did we come to New Jersey? And it's like, <laughs> oh, because we had family here. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and we, I mean, I've been living in New Jersey, New York area my whole life. What's New Jersey like? <laughs> it's very um suburban I, I don't know there's a lot of different areas to it because we're yeah. so close to new york um like where i where the office is is like in south jersey so really close to philadelphia so we're like 30 minutes away from philly but it's very like suburbs um and then if you go up north um it's since it's so close to new york a lot of people you know live there and then just commute to work from new york and there's um it's not as suburban, I would say. Is there a large immigrant population? Again, it kind of depends which part of Jersey you're in. Where we grew up in Cherry Hill, I think growing up there weren't that many. But like once I got into high school, I felt like it was pretty diverse. But growing up, I lived in actually in the neighboring town. And like in elementary school, I was probably there was maybe one other Asian person in my grade. I definitely was always aware that like I was, I guess, quote unquote, different. (laughs) I didn't look like a lot of the other people. Um, There really wasn't that much diversity until we got older. And so I felt like growing up, I always felt like there were definitely like two different worlds or like identities that I had. So one was like me at home. And my parents also called me by my Korean name, which is Nadi. So I had like this, this persona of Nadi at home. And then at school, I was Florence. So it was like sort of the more American one and, you know, wanted to fit in. Um, so that was always kind of a struggle for me growing up. I think it was more just like in the everyday of like, what I imagined to be a typical American life, like what I saw on TV versus like, what I knew my life was like, which was very different. Like, for example, I remember one time, our teacher had us like, we did some assignment, we had to write down like what we ate for dinner (laughs) the day before. And I remember specifically writing like chicken soup. because (laughs) That's what I thought 
like quote unquote American people eat. But like, clearly that's not what I ate. Like my mom made like a kimchi jjigae, which is like a kimchi stew with rice and, you know, all these side dishes. But like, how was I going to write that on a piece of paper? <laughs> you didn't like explain what it is in like brackets. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like a completely different language for them. So yeah, yeah. And what about you, Athena? I would say like, because I, I grew up ever since I was pretty much two, I was back and forth between here and China. So it was, I I kind of felt like I didn't fit in here and I also didn't fit in, in China. So in China, I'm like, I obviously stand out because I don't really speak Chinese or, I mean, right now I, I can speak, but I, it's not very fluent. I can definitely tell I wasn't from there and I can't read. So it's, you know, it was like, I kind of st- stuck out. But also in China, it's because because my face is Chinese. Everybody always assumes that I'm doing it on purpose. When, I, when I'm like, I don't really know what you're saying. Can you repeat that? Or what? Like, what does that mean? And they're like, you're you're Chinese. Why are you pretending like you can't speak Chinese? And I was like, okay, because I didn't grow up here. Like, you have to go into this whole thing. And then here, I guess it's kind of the same thing, but the opposite. I remember when I was a kid. Know that my mom's office, and there was a guy that came in to like have a meeting or something, and he was like, "Oh, like your English is really good." I was like, "Yeah, I mean, I was born here, I went to school here. Like, of course, my English is good, and I get that a lot here too. So it's like either my Chinese is not good enough, or my English is really good for being Asian." <laughs> yeah, so I was kind of like always in between, um, but luckily, like when I was in middle school, I met like. Uh, I went to an international school, so everyone was kind of there because of their parents' jobs, but they were all from, like, different parts of America, so we were all pretty much in the same boat. We just got, like, thrown into the school in China, and we, like, you know, we were from America, we grew up in America, and we were not used to it, and so I met a bunch of people that were, like, in the same situation, and that really, like, made me feel like I had somewhere that I belonged because all these people had the same experiences as me where we're kind of just like in the middle of everything. And I also think like in America, a lot of people, especially like growing up in my school and stuff, they were Asian, but they had never gone to Asia before, which for me was hard to relate to because it's like, I, you know, I like grew up in between both. So, you know, so that was also like kind of strange for me. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, experience of living between two countries. Was that a decision that your parents made to, to try and keep you connected with your culture, your Chinese heritage? Yeah, so I they sent me over there because um, they wanted me to learn Chinese, basically. I'm so grateful for the experience. I know when I was going through it, I was upset because I like had to leave all my friends in America. And then every summer I'd come back, my mom would move to a different town or something. So it's really hard to make friends if you're always moving. But looking back, I'm so grateful because I know not a lot of people get that opportunity to be, you know, connected to their own culture. And I was there, like I saw like how China grew and I was like, I really experienced China and I'm so grateful for that. And I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons why we even started Covery because like we, it was easier for me to like be able to find manufacturers over there. And like the whole, mainly like most of the production in the world is in China. So that really helped a lot and, you know, for apparel and things like that. So. Hmm. Nice. And Florence, did you ever get many opportunities to go to Korea or 
Um, yeah, thankfully. So I have a lot of relatives um, and also my grandparents were in Korea also. So thankfully I did have a lot of opportunities to go um, when I was younger and like through high school and college, not as much as I would like to, but yeah, definitely grateful for those experiences. And also I think growing up, like I was still a little connected because I was going to like a Korean church. So we had sort of those like, you know, we had like um, Korean school on Saturdays, which I hated going to, I just wanted to sleep in and I was not allowed to sleep in. And, you know, I watched Korean dramas at home and stuff like that. So I guess in a way, like that was my way of sort of learning more about that part of my identity. I guess like both of you kind of had like a, a, a version of being the sort of in between two different cultures. Can you talk a bit about how you personally navigated all those challenges? I don't know. I think when you're kind of like growing up and you're just going through it, you just do it. I don't know. I I feel like I didn't really self-analyze that much. I was kind of like, okay, well, this is just my life. But I definitely, it was definitely really helpful to be with people who understood you or who are kind of in the same boat. So you could actually like you know, share your experiences and talk about what you were going through and people like understood you. So same with me. I feel like I never like really thought out, okay, how am I going to deal with this? I kind of just woke up the next day and it just happened. (laughs) I kind of just dealt with whatever came. Um, But I think like Athena was saying, I had a very similar experience where it's like, once you kind of find your people, people that you don't necessarily need to explain every aspect of like a certain problem, they kind of just know. I think that's when I started to kind of feel like, okay, like this is normal. We have a shared experience. And I think that's also kind of when I decided that like, like like I was saying earlier, like I always felt like I was in two different worlds and I had two different like identities in a way. And I felt like it was only once I got into like high school, college was when I could accept that like you could have both. Like I didn't have to choose between being Asian or American like I am Asian American and that is a valid experience yeah totally 100% um yeah so I'm sure you've been asked this many many times but can you talk about the story behind Covery so how did it start and where did you get the idea from so it really started because Florence's boyfriend is very active and he loves to go climbing like bouldering and stuff at the gym and he invited us and we were both like so bad at it (laughs) I mean it's tough (laughs) extreme upper arms yeah yeah we were so bad at it and we felt like so pressured because everyone was kind of just like sitting on the ground watching you and waiting till you get off so they can go do it so we're like okay whatever like let's just go sit by the mat and like wait until he's done so when we were sitting there we're like talking about like work and things like that and I was like hey like I've kind of had this idea for you know sunglasses and like what if there was some like detachable thing that could make it fit better or like some nose piece thing? Like it was so vague, like such a vague idea, but just like a small, a small like idea in my head. And then Florence is like, Oh yeah. Like that sounds really cool actually. Cause like, I also haven't found things that fit. So from there we're like, maybe we could make this a thing. And we just slowly, you know, started researching more because I was familiar, like we were both familiar with the fashion and apparel industry, but 
we had never worked in eyewear before, which is like a completely different thing. So we were like, okay. Um, and I also knew I never wanted to do like an apparel company just because it's like, there's so many seasons and it costs a lot of front and it, there's like so many sizings and stuff. So I was like, this seems more manageable for us. Like we're, you know, we've never had a business before, obviously. So for us, like in our early twenties, we're like, this seems manageable. Like maybe we can just do a few styles. So from there we, uh, you know, like I found vendors, I researched and we found, you know, manufacturers to partner with. And we just did like baby steps. It took us over a year. We, uh, like one week we'd be like, oh, let's figure out how to get a business license. And then the next week we'd be like, how do we have a domain name and make a website? So it was like really small things. And we were both still working at the time. So I think that was pretty helpful. We weren't, we didn't, like we did everything baby steps and it really helped us be organized and do things well instead of having like this strict deadline and we're like, we have to have this company up by this and we have to have sales by this time. And we were kind of just really going with the flow and seeing what we could do. So then we are like, got to the point where we're like, okay, we found all the partners and now we need money. So <laughs> we're, we were like, let's put this on Kickstarter, which is like a group crowdfunding um, website. And we wanted to see one, if anyone else had this issue, like we're really the only ones that could never find things that fit us or do other people have this issue. It's kind of like we wanted to test the market. And then we also needed money to fill the first run of production. So um, from there, we had the Kickstarter up and we raised like 300% of our goal, which kind of like surprised us both. We were like, we were in the beginning, we were like, okay, if we can just reach our goal by like, you know, that we would be so happy. Like if we just reach our goal. And then once we started like blowing past that, we're like, this is crazy. Like we didn't expect this at all. Like, um so that was really awesome. I remember like sitting in front of my computer and like seeing the numbers go up every time I refreshed yeah. it and I thought like my <laughs> computer was like broken or something. I thought it was playing a prank on me. Yeah. Because everything <laughs> happened at the end of our 30 days. So it all came rushing at the end. So for like most of the time we were just, you know, barely getting any money. So yeah, we were pretty psyched about it. Was it like through word of mouth or like how did people find out about your Kickstarter? Before we launched on Kickstarter, so we had a year of kind of figuring everything out, right? So fame with the Kickstarter project, as soon as we decided that we were going to launch on there, we had planned in advance like, okay, we had lists set up of, you know, our friends, our family, um, previous like people we had worked with that we knew we were going to reach out to. Um, and then at the time, or I guess before that, I had also been working in um, communications. So I kind of just started pitching a bunch of editors. And I didn't really think any anybody <laughs> would write about it, especially a, a Kickstarter project at the time. But I think we were a little bit more strategic in figuring out like who we were going to pitch to. So we looked for editors that we kind of knew would maybe resonate with our idea. So we pitched other Asian editors that might have had problems with like low nose bridge or different fit issues um, or covered, you know, fashion accessories, that type of thing. But we were very consistent. Like nobody responded the first few weeks. So I am quite interested in hearing about just 
Because it's a lot, right, to take it from conception to f- the final product. Like you have so much to do. Did it ever feel just insurmountable? Because I, I know the feeling of like thinking, oh, I need, I don't know, this thing. But then realizing on your way to having to do that thing, you have to do like a million other things as well. Were there any points in the journey where you just thought, oh, my gosh, this is too much? Well, I think as a business owner, that's probably going to be how you feel every day because there's (laughs) always so much to do. But thankfully, we had each other. So like, you know, I think we were able to split up our responsibilities, um, which really helps and to have like a partner that you trust is really important. And then for me personally, like I just I write a lot of lists So I just like, I find so much joy in like crossing out a task. So that really helped me. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't always like smooth sailing. Like we had so many issues because we we weren't familiar with importing and stuff like that, like really technical things. So we had a lot of issues with like when we first got our shipment and it was stuck in customs and we needed all these to pay all these crazy fees. And so it was, it was, we definitely had really stressful moments, um, but honestly, like nothing is that hard to figure out and nothing is going to like be the end of the day. Like, you know, the thing that kills you It's you can get past anything. You just have to like, you know, we were lucky that we had each other so we could, you know, like, and then it's also really helpful to like always ask your like friends and family if they know anybody who knows like this customs person or you never know who knows somebody who can help you. So I definitely think like, reaching out to people, knowing that you uh, telling people that you need help. Like everyone has also been so nice and like so willing to help us. So I, I feel like we learned that nothing is like impossible. We just, you need time to figure it out and you need some resources, but you'll figure it out. Hmm. Were your families really supportive of you starting your own business? Um, yeah. My parents, <laughs> Florence's parents are a lot more <laughs> supportive than mine. Right. <laughs> I mean, they weren't like thrilled about the idea. Nobody was jumping up and down. Um, but I think like, you know, I had always kind of done what I was supposed to do all throughout college and like, you know, getting a job. And I think when I kind of told them like, here's our plan, I wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to quit my job and start a business and like hope for the best. Like, you know, we had a business plan that I remember sharing. So like we had a plan, we had done all of our research. And I think, well, for me, like I was able to communicate that with my parents in a way that would help them understand and be supportive. But thankfully, I will say that they responded much better than I initially, initially <laughs> thought. And Athena, yeah. you, your parents um, were not. So my parents are both also entrepreneurs and they both have their own business so I think in their mind they're like you know how hard this is like can you just get a normal job and call it a day and have like what are you doing (laughs) yeah they're like what are you doing selling glasses like (laughs) if you want to sell stuff go sell some like (laughs) medical equipment or gloves or medical gloves or something I was like I don't want to do that (laughs) so I mean medical gloves (laughs) yeah so I I mean my parents are very 
they're kind of traditional, but they're also not. Like, I went to school for fashion, so that's already, like, not traditional. I'm, like, really grateful that they even let me do that. My brother is, like, a rapper, so clearly my parents are not, like, they're not, like, very strict. Um, So I think, like, I think Florence, like, what she was saying, like, when we showed them that we had a business plan and showing, like, especially, like, how successful the Kickstarter went, I think really made them feel better and I don't know if this is like an Asian parent thing but I think when other people outside say that your kid is doing well they believe them more (laughs) so like when we had articles written about us from like known you know like known publications it was like oh okay so maybe she's doing something right you know I think they need like outside validation when we're doing something that's like seems not like a typical thing to do yeah I remember we were in this like Korean newspaper once and I was like I shared that with my parents and that was probably like they had the brightest reaction to that over like a cosmopolitan or something (laughs) oh that's so cute it's like you know like when people get in the newspaper and their parents like cut it out and then stick it on the wall like stick it on the fridge it's like kind of that similar (laughs) vibes yeah 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 um But I think what's been really important is that, like, over the years, we've been really transparent with them about, like, where we are or, like, if we have, you know, good news or, like, challenges. Like, we always share that with them so that they're also, like, in the loop. And I think that kind of helps it, makes it easier for them to support us also. I have a question around the name. How did you come up with the name and what does it mean? So, Cobri comes from the word cove. Um, It's a made-up word, which is something we always wanted to do because we had read somewhere that if you make up a a word um, it's easier to trademark which is true and also you can kind of give it its own meaning instead of having people already have some sort of preconceived notion with the word we like the word cove because it's sort of like this natural place Um, it's very peaceful and then we just turned it into covery because we thought it was cute (laughs) (laughs) I love it (laughs) And so are both of you like glasses wearers and were you sort of conscious of the issue of the fit before you came up with your product? Yeah, I I, I have really bad eyesight, so I've worn glasses my whole life. But I would say like the, the thing that really made me realize like fit is such an issue was when I was in high school and, you know, I, I don't know if it's like this where you are but here there's like trends right that everybody in high school does so like if uggs are the new thing everyone has uggs and everybody had ray-bans so i was like okay i need some ray-bans and then that was the first time i really realized i was like this doesn't fit me but i'm just gonna wear it because it's the thing that everybody is wearing and like they dug into my cheeks like they they don't even really sit on my face um and, but I was like, I didn't think it was my face. I was just like, oh, I mean, maybe if it's like that from them too. I just didn't even think about it. I was like, I just want this because everybody has it and it's cool. But, you know, after you wear it, you're like, this is so uncomfortable. You don't even really end up wearing it. Um, and then in college, I remember like Paris Hilton had these like huge glasses that were like the thing. And <laughs> I remember trying them on and I, they were like stuck on my cheeks and then they would fog up every time I like went into a room because they're so like glued to my face. Um, and I was like, this is 
not I, I was like is anyone else like wiping the inside of their glasses it's fogging up like does that happen and then and then I was like okay maybe they're not for me like that was the first time I was like maybe these are just not made for my face like I, did, I guess I just shouldn't be wearing these so that's kind of like how I the first time that made me think that there was something that was it was my face you know <laughs> yeah for me too like I remember when I would go shopping for glasses or sunglasses, like I would literally try every single one on in store just to find one that kind of fits well. And it would never really be like the style that I initially, initially sought out for, but it fit me the best. So I would kind of just end up buying that one. And that's why when Athena like first mentioned the idea, I was like so excited because one, we had known each other for years at that point and neither of us ever talked about that. But it was something that I had struggled with my whole life, too. So that's why it was really exciting. And that's why, like, elevate, creating elevated fit and, and f- making sure that the frames fit well was always our number one priority before we even created what Cobra is today, like a brand. We, ha- we just wanted to make sunglasses that fit us really well. <laughs> that's a great segue into explaining elevated fit and how it's different to other sunglasses so we just made a couple of changes on the frames for the fit uh we the common issues are that the frames glasses usually like sit on your cheeks when you smile they like rise up because they're sitting on your cheeks a lot of the times they're like too narrow on the side so they're pinching your head um if they're sitting too close to your Face, your eyelashes are like touching the lenses or it's fogging up um so they should technically like sit on your on your nose on your bridge but because you know we don't have such a high bridge they just end up falling and sitting on your cheeks and resting on your cheeks they like leave indents all those things so we the first thing was like okay how do we get them to sit higher on our face on our nose on our actual nose instead of our cheeks so we made the nose pads larger we made the sides wider because you know like I mean, everybody has different size faces, but generally, like, if it's wider, you can, um, it feels a little bit better. And uh, the bridge here is more narrow, so we reduced the, the piece right here. So they don't, if it's too wide, they'll, like, slide down. So we want to make sure they're really sitting on your bridge. And then the other thing is um, a lot of frames, if you look at them, like they kind of curve in, especially Ray-Bans. They like slant inward. So we brought the slant like straighter out so they don't like dig down into you. So like I mentioned in my original email when I reached out to you, I didn't realize sunglasses didn't fit me until I put on Covery sunglasses and <laughs> my eyelashes weren't touching the frame. <laughs> not, not the frame, no, but yeah. glasses themselves. Um, yeah it's honestly like consciously I didn't even realize it was an issue but then yeah it's really one of those things where like I didn't know I needed them until I got them (laughs) yeah we hear that a lot and I mean that's also been something that we had to um, try to figure out is a lot of people don't know that it's even an issue but when they try our frames on they're like wow like this really fits different I didn't realize this is a thing so in the beginning it was like we had to do a lot of like um education yeah education on it on like this is not how it's supposed to fit and this is how it should fit yeah so that was like definitely something that we had to work around work on in the beginning because you know people a lot of people just don't even realize and you know same as us we didn't realize until 
you were older too. Hmm. What did you use as like a standard of how a pair of glasses should fit on a face? Uh, I guess we just used our faces <laughs> when we we did our sam- when we did the samples. We were like, okay, it's still like we always knew that when you smile and when you laugh, you shouldn't be touching your cheeks. Shouldn't be like touching the frames. It shouldn't be sitting on your frames. Um, and if they're sitting on your frames, you're not getting any airflow, which is why you're also, the lenses are fogging up all the time. So we just kind of like, I mean, we went through so many samples and we just tested them on our faces and our friends and families. And, um, you know, like we just kept doing that until we found, like, we found things that we were like, okay, these are the things that we're going to keep in elevated fit. And it's going to be in every frame on, you know, all glasses and sunglasses. I watched one interview that you both gave uh, where you kind of touched a little bit on the challenges of being young female business owners, but I wondered if being young Asian-American women played any kind of role in, like, your journey so far in business. I think for me... I felt like it was really only apparent when we were initial, initially looking for manufacturing partners. I mean, it's because we were both young. Um, we're Asian, so we look even younger, right? <laughs> um, and we had never started a business before, and our order quantity was going to be like quite small. So I think all of those things kind of had, a, you know, a play into maybe why they didn't take us as seriously as we had hoped. So in that sense, I feel like we kind of had to prove ourselves as serious business women, you know, and to show them that like, we have a good business, we're going to keep ordering from you, we're going to be a good partner for you guys. Um, and that really is only built over time. But I mean, thankfully, now, like we have really, really great manufacturing partners that we have a really good relationship with. And they're very understanding of I think most importantly, our mission as a brand, which was to provide inclusive eyewear that fits. And that was always our number one priority. So finding a partner that actually understood that versus like finding someone who can just make a bunch of glasses for us, I think was harder. But since we made that a priority, we were able to finally find someone that was aligned with us on that. Our whole product was that these fit better, right? Um, and that's also why we called it elevated fit because we knew that, you know, there was a fit issue and we knew that it was something that anyone could have a problem with, not just Asians. And that's why we in, like intentionally didn't call it like, you know, quote unquote Asian fit because we knew it was something that was open for everyone. And finding like partners that understood our mission from the get go were the ones that turned out to be partners that we had longer relationships with. And in terms of, I guess, the things that you have both learned so far uh, in setting up your own business and running your own business, because I feel like in terms of like entrepreneurs and business people, the sort of typical idea is that they're like really outspoken, like extroverted. Do you feel like you necessarily have to be that particular type of personality in order to succeed in business? I think like you, there's 
I mean, business is everywhere, right? There's all different types of business. I think the, the caricature and stereotype of like a super successful CEO that we see now and they had, you know, they had after one year in business, they raised $5 billion and now they're, you know, I think that's really unrealistic and it's maybe only happens to 1% of people that go into business. I mean, we're, we're, like you said, we're both introverted. Like it's, it's not natural for us to be like salesy kind of people to like go out there and you know like talk to everybody in network and everything like, you know, what you think a CEO or business owner would be like. But I think we have our strengths that we bring to our business that, yeah, it's like, it's, it's our business. Like we know how to do it the best because it's ours and we care about this the most more than anyone else would care about it. So that's, you know, like, I think those are the qualities that are what we have and we can only work with what we have, you know, (laughs) I think if we try to be unnatural to ourselves and to like go out there and try to be these big personalities, it, it would show and it's just not us. And, you know, we, we also struggle with, you know, like there's so many founders that are like always on Instagram and they share everything. And we definitely struggle with that because it's really hard for us to do that because we're so introverted and we didn't grow up with like Facebook and Instagram and, you know, Snapchat and all this stuff. So it's definitely hard. And we try to work on that because, you know, we do want to be more connected to our customers and build, you know, our community with them. Um, So that we're definitely working on, (laughs) but in terms of like, you know, this, we, I think a lot of people nowadays are very, they want things to happen immediately. They want gratification immediately. And it just is not realistic. I mean, at least for us, it wasn't. Um, we've been doing this for like, what is it, like five, six years now. And we see like growth every year. And, you know, like every year we learn and we are really happy with how everything's going. Um, but I think by like year two, we're like, okay, this is not going to be like, a, <laughs> we're not going to raise like $500 million tomorrow. And like, we just need to work on our company and like really figure it out. And like, we're also first time entrepreneurs. So I think sometimes it can be disheartening and you can get lost in the idea of like, oh, this person is so successful and they started the company like last week and this person raised this much money and how are they doing this? And like, I need to be more like them, but everybody has their own pace. Everybody does the best that they can do at at their speed. And most of the time, like companies take years and years and years and years to develop, to be able to, you know, reach what they had dream of. It's really not like an overnight thing that a lot of people I think expect. So. Yeah, exactly. There's so much work that goes into it and the general public only, see such a small fraction of it right like it's the whole like iceberg metaphor Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. you only really see the very tip but there's so much underneath it Mm -hmm. um and also just on what you were saying before like there's so many different kinds of businesses right and not every business is going to be that silicon valley sort of like unicorn startup and they don't Mm -hmm. need to be in order Mm -hmm. to make a difference in the world and to Mm -hmm. help people achieve their dreams how important then is it to the both of you to have proper representation in both business and also in fashion i mean for us it's at the core of our business right so like Hovery was literally born out of the idea that 
there weren't frames that were made for us. Like we were never even considered in the traditional industries like designs or their marketing. So I think for us, like we always wanted to build something that represented us like through our product, through our imagery, and that will always be like our priority. And I think in the fashion industry, I will say I feel like they've always been somewhat more ahead in terms of inclusivity compared to other industries, just because there are so many talented like designers from all over the world. But I think in terms of like representation in executive suites or like in campaigns, we've come a long way, but we could go a lot more. <laughs> like when we first started in 2015, you had Oakley that was doing, you know, their quote unquote Asian fit sunglasses, but there was like maybe one or two styles. But other than that, there really weren't that many other companies that were offering sort of like an alternative fit. But if you fast forward to today, like there's a lot of companies doing it. And I think that that's really cool because it shows that the market, you know, has kind of stood up and said, yes, we need something like that. And kind of proven that like with sales, but also like, you know, people voicing their opinions more and standing up for themselves. Well, thank you both so much for joining me and sharing your stories. It's been such a delight just speaking to you and getting to know you better. And I wish you all the very best with your business. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us on and giving us the opportunity to share Cobri with you. Thank you so much for listening and a huge thanks to Florence and Athena for putting their trust and support in me in this podcast. I was just a random customer from the opposite side of the world and they were so gracious with their time. They were a delight to talk to and I'm sure they will go on to do incredible things with their passion for diverse and inclusive fashion. As always, please rate, subscribe and follow on Instagram if you don't already. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast.